This is Kelly Carlin, and welcome to Waking from the American Dream. I have a guest today. It's so exciting. An actual another human being is joining me here on the podcast. Uh, my guest today is Harvey J.K., who is the Ben and Joyce Rosenberg Professor of Democracy and Justice Studies at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. He's also author and editor of numerous works, including Thomas Paine and the Promise of America and The Fight for Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the what made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great. He has a forthcoming book called Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again, and he swears this title was before Donald Trump <laughs> reared his strange head. And you can also find Harvey um, contributing regularly to The Guardian Unlimited, The Daily Beast, The Huffington Post, and also, he is a regular contributor at Bill Moyers' online portal, BillMoyers.com, and he was a guest of Bill's on Bill's show a few times. I have no idea where I met Harvey J.K. <laughs> <laughs> we think we must have met on Twitter, which is probably true, Harvey. Good now that I meet so many people on Twitter. Uh, and I'm just, I'm, I'm thrilled. We, and you and I had a long conversation last year about... Um, America about uh, right. American history about Thomas Paine um, about FDR and of course this podcast is called Waking from the American Dream so I knew that's why I wanted you to, to come on here and you're a professor you're a professor of this stuff you teach people about why it's important to understand the foundations of this uh, the ideology of this country uh, I'm so curious have you always been fascinated by American history yeah, yeah. as a matter of fact um, I, I, I was trying to figure out where this all began. I mean, you know, in a kind of self-reflection thing. And I, and I've, I don't know if I've invented this or if I've actually come to it. And it's some many years that I've believed it, at least. Um, when I was a little boy, and I mean a little boy, before I could read, my grandparents used my grand. This was all the New York City area. My both sets of my grandparents lived in Brooklyn, and they would come out to our home. Are, are you catching? This is getting through to you, right? Okay, so they, we come out to our home in New Jersey. My parents had moved to a little, you know, a classic greatest generation story, moving out to the suburbs. And my grandparents would come out, and while one of my grandfathers used to take me to baseball games, and he was my sports connection, my other grandfather, who was a trial lawyer, used to read to me from a giant golden book, Old Testament Bible stories. And he would, and I, and I came to realize eventually that the way he would tell the stories of, from the Old Testament is he would weave them together with kind of the whole story of being Jewish and his growing up on the Lower East Side in Manhattan. I mean, wow. it's, it's all sort of woven together in my, as a strange, not strange, but as a sort of mysterious memory because I, I can't name the date and the time and all that. Mm -hmm. but, but I realized that what he was doing is he was sort of planting in my head or imbuing me with these questions about justice and 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 dissent and rebellion and exodus that all of those you know sort of redemption all those kinds of things that so and so that was one thing and then on the other hand i can also tell you that my grandfather who connected me to baseball as a boy um 
it was so he was so close to the Brooklyn Dodgers. He knew all the he knew the management. He knew the players. Even as a boy, I met Jackie Robinson and the entire team. I got to sit in the Ebbets Field dugout back in the early fifties as a really little boy. But when the Dodgers left Brooklyn, I went out to California, which is one of the reasons I've never felt particularly good about Southern California. But <laughs> I've actually talked my about my dad's that. heart was broken when the Dodgers moved to California. Exactly, that's exactly what my grandfather. Well, my grandfather, I'm convinced, died young as opposed to having lived even longer, as he died in his late sixties. But my mother had just was devastated. Anyhow, as a little boy, I'm convinced their departure from Brooklyn made me become something of a socialist. <laughs> And, you know that you can't do that kind of so for and I wrote a piece for a baseball magazine which actually I maybe the best piece I ever read ever wrote titled from Marx's communist manifesto all that is solid melts into air mm. you know that this that this corporate entity could uplift could rip itself out of Brooklyn and move to Southern California yeah so I had this feeling that between my two grandfathers and my father's own life as a as a well he'd never have said this war hero Mm. World War II, um, but that, uh, and, and just, I just think all of that sort of led to my asking certain questions. And so, and so that's probably where it began. And when I was in school, I, another thing that was really crucial, when I was 10 years of age and my grandfather, grandmother, and my father's side were still in Brooklyn, they lived across from the Brooklyn Museum. This is going to become a little longer than you want to hear, but they lived across from the Brooklyn Museum, right directly across from the Brooklyn Museum. So when I was a little boy, again, eight, nine, 10 years of age, um, whenever, whenever I'd go to Brooklyn, I'd want somebody to take me over to the museum because it wasn't that I was crazy about art, but they had an Egyptology collection that included an unwrapped mummy. <laughs> and you know, what eight-year-old, nine-year-old, 10-year-old boy isn't fascinated. You could just go there and just stare at it, you know, just trying to conceive what, what this was all about. But there were times when nobody was around to take me, meaning there was no cousin who might have shown up to take me or my father was tied up or whatever else. And um, at those times, I would wander my grandfather's and grandmother's apartment as if it was a set of galleries. And I would end up in the dining room, which I can still see even now, which was a, a, fairly, a fairly decent sized room with a set of bookshelves on the back of the back wall. And these were the books that my grandfather thought of as his personal books, not his law books. And I remember just looking at these, not even sure I could even understand any of them that were on the wall, because they were history and politics and similar kinds of things. And I would eventually sit down on the floor, and my eyes went directly to a shelf that were books by and about Thomas Paine. Ah. And there was one book in particular that fascinated me by, by a guy named jo Joseph... Joseph Reed, something like that. The point was that this man was a free, think a free thinker, probably essentially an atheist. And Paine wasn't an atheist, but Paine had been a deist and a free thinker. And this man had really made his, one of his life's commitments to promote the memory of Thomas Paine against all the powers that be that wanted to suppress Paine's memory. Mm. So, and he wrote this book, which at the time fascinated me, titled uh, Thomas Paine, the Real Author of the Declaration of Independence. Wow. And, and, and all I knew was, if it was in a book, it was probably true. What, I mean, what did I know, right? <laughs> I knew Mein Kampf for all that shit. So I, you know, I, so I would constantly refer to this book in school whenever teachers asked who wrote the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> so I may be the only historian who never got 100% on a history test. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and so it was really wonderful. And I'm, by the way, I, we don't have time for me to go into it, but sometime I'll tell you the rest of the story about that book. 
But I think that it was all there. It was all there waiting to be sort of, when my grandmother passed away, really re relatively young, my grandfather had to downsize and move apartments. He sort of, he handed to me some of the books, not the book that, in, that inspired me, the piece that, you know, the, the awful book that inspired me, but other books by and about Thomas Paine. And during, and during high school, to try to impress girls or whatever, I would sort of, you know, sort of say I was reading Thomas Paine, and not that they would have known any better either. But over time, I actually trained as a Latin Americanist. And then I spent the 19... And then I moved from Latin American studies. I actually... If you leave the United States, or even in the United States, a lot of people in the historical profession know me for the work I did on a group of British intellectuals, uh, British Marxist historians, who were also prominent political figures for founding the campaign for nuclear disarmament and things like that. But I decided in the early 90s, having written about Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, that the only way I could maybe make an impact, if I had any chance of making an impact in the United States politically and intellectually, it might well be to become an Americanist. Mm. So to make the longest story short, I reached back to my hero, Thomas Paine, and you know, I devoted myself for some years basically to promoting his memory, and I wrote a young adult book for Oxford University Press that won the New York Public Library Award for best book for the teenage, and that led me to write another book, The Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, which was really my love letter to America, because mm -hmm. it retells American history by way of Thomas Paine's legacy. And then in the course of doing that, I rediscovered FDR, because FDR in 1942 grabbed hold of Thomas Paine, which no president had done since Thomas Jefferson, oh, wow. and, quote, and quoted Paine to rally Americans to the war effort. And I thought, oh, wow. And I decided I'd want to look further into Franklin Roosevelt's commitments to democracy and stuff. So I wrote about FDR. So there, it's all that. I mean, it just sort of happened. Yeah, I, I love how these seeds are planted in childhood. And mm -hmm. just something gives us um, an angle on the world or a way to yeah. make sense of it all but also this this other thing we were talking about the brooklyn dodgers this this sense of injustice yeah that um i mean i remember being a little girl and watching this you know this docu not a docu series but this a mini series uh -huh. um uh on um what was it called the it was about the black slave who had not Harriet Tubman, but Jane. Oh, I can't remember the name of it right now. But I remember watching this whole story about, you know, this woman who helped slaves escape. And my dad had always I mean, talked about. Okay, so it's not, and it's not Sojourner Truth because. Yeah, no, it's not her. I'll, I'll get it. Um, okay. But but I just remember, and my dad, you know, had grown up in the Upper West Side in New York between uh -huh. Spanish Harlem and Black Harlem. He was in mm. Irish Harlem, so he was surrounded by. Um, you know, when he was, he was born in 37. So the 1950s were his teenage yeah. years. And so he was very influenced by black culture and, mm -hmm. and very much a, a person who also really saw the systemic oppression of, of, of black culture oh, yeah. and mm -hmm. black people. And he, he was from day one, very sensitive to that. And so that was always in the background. But then I remember seeing this mini series and it just, lighting the fire inside of my hmm. chest yeah. of how dare 
we dehumanize people and how oh, yeah. dare we treat a whole swath of humanity, you know, and I was probably eight or something, but it's that time when something is lit inside of us um, where we become, some of us become political creatures, you know, yeah, some of us right, don't, but right. some of us do. And, um, and, and so, and I'm really, I was thinking about you, Harvey, and, and the work you do and this, this commitment to this foundational radicalism of America. And, and I'd, I'd love to talk a little bit about, just to give a little primer about what it is about Thomas Paine that really does represent the heart and soul of this grand experiment of America. Yeah, well, I mean, the, certain ing- there are certain ingredients or certain elements in his story that just speak in some ways, to, to being an American, and, and yet even, even without the ideas that come with it. So, for example, he was an immigrant to the United States, and he, he was fed up with life in Britain. He was already, speaking of, you mentioned 37 years of age with your dad, he, he, was, he was 37 when he, when he came over. He had been born to a pretty humble family. His father was an artisan. They had, they, he had had some schooling, but they had pulled him out of school to apprentice to his own father. He and his mother pulled him out. Um, he had... He'd gone off to fight as a privateer, which is essentially licensed piracy during the, you know, of the English versus the French. He had spent time in London trying to educate himself at lectures and coffee houses, hearing people speak. He had tried to make a living himself as a corset maker, what his father had been, a stay maker, you know, basically, you know, what a corset maker is. Mm-hmm. Um, lost his first love when she was giving birth and lost the baby as well. Um, became a tax collector, an excise officer in England, got fired, uh, came back into the excise commission, uh, led a campaign to try and get improved wages for excise officers. Over and over again, he's sort of smacked down and he seems undaunted. And he finally gets to the point where he, he's reaching what we would think of as middle age. And what's he going to do? Because he gets laid off again, sacked, as the English would say. And he is in conversation with, of all people, the most famous figure of the Atlantic world, but who, one of the people whom he has come to know in the coffee houses of London, Benjamin Franklin. Wow. And Franklin encourages him to go to America. And the, the American rebellion is already underway. And even then, he practically, he almost dies on board ship from, a, from what they call, just call ship's fever. And he arrives in America and he's utterly, he, he is astonished, amazed at what he discovers in America. Um, he, he comes to, an, he's, I mean, he's got his serious questions about slavery and all of that, and he writes about that, which makes him enemies in some quarters. But he's astonished at the fact that in America, there just isn't the poverty that he knew and witnessed and knew in England. Mm. That moreover, there's a sense among working people that they should not be pushed around. That, you know, that they were British subjects with the rights of British subjects. And in fact, he arrives at a time when Americans are already in rebellion. Right. But what he can't get over is how these, um, these Americans, in, and he's witnessing them in Philadelphia, don't even realize the potential that they have. They don't realize that they have already carried out something of a revolution. They've thrown out British authority. They've set up committees to govern themselves. In fact, the only Britisher who actually recognized it and didn't refuse to actually use the words was Edmund Burke, the, the renowned conservative. He said in a speech to Parliament, we got to watch out what we're doing. The Americans have already carried out a revolution. That word he did use, but he, but he left it there. 
Payne sees all of this and he becomes determined, determined to enable Americans to see what they're capable of doing based on what they have already accomplished. So, so, I, so I'm thinking about, I mean, obviously in Britain, you know, this was a feudalistic society for... An, at least a royal and aristocratic, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. so there was, and even, you know, you go there now even in, you know, the 21st century, and there's a real sense of class still. The classes still don't mix. I had a friend who had a very fancy house in Scotland, and the people who worked the grounds yeah. were of one class, and we would, like, invite them in to play pool with us, and the manager guy of, not my friend, but the oh, yeah. guy of the place who was a local was like, you don't do that. Yeah. So there's a very ingrained sense of this is your lot, this is your place, and there is, there is nothing well, else. Well, it's funny you say that because inequality in the United States is grosser, S-S-E-R, <laughs> grosser than inequality in England, in yeah. Britain. However, the sense of class has survived there in a much stronger form than it has in the United States. In fact, that's one of the problems in the United States, that we don't fully come to grips with this class structure and even the class struggle that in many ways we're involved in. But indeed, you're right about England. But he came to America and he was just astonished by this. So he wrote Common Sense. Mm-hmm. And, and in school, people will be taught that he wrote Common Sense and it was the first public call for an American revolution for independence, to turn the, war, the rebellion into a war for independence. But Paine did far more than that. In this pamphlet, Common Sense, he literally projects an image of America, a vision of America, based on what he sees Americans doing of a democratic, republican America. Mm-hmm. And moreover, and it, you know, historians and biographers, well, historians over and over again just underestimate the, the power of this, this man's mind, even though he was just kind of really came out of what we would think of as a working class background. He actually urges that a new constitution, that a constitution be written, which would include separation of church and state. Mm-hmm. Okay. He, he sort of projects what Americans will inf- essentially embrace in order to win the revolution and create a nation state. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't know how we got off on that, and it doesn't really matter how we did, but, but Paine had this kind, of, this kind of impact on America so that in many ways we are the radicals. We're radicals at heart because he imbued American life with a sense of its... I know this, you know, too many people, especially on the left, don't buy this, but I see American history as, a, as, a, as an exceptional story. Yeah. And, and I think that in many ways it's imbued in American life really deeply by this fundamental vision that Paine offers, which, by the way, was a vision that, that was not out of, his, out of his head alone. It's what he put into words based on what he saw in America. So, so, so he, saw, he saw potential. Um, I mean, you know, you, you think of, I mean, you know, what we learn in history around this stuff, that yeah. the age of enlightenment has happened, that there is new thinking new thoughts about the place of man in the universe um, that, you know, in, you know, in some, yeah. in some hallways, you know, it's not this God centric uh, universe anymore that man, you know, I think therefore I am is how. Yeah, right. And, and then now there's this place where there's no history. There's no accumulation of, of, of structure, of internal structure, of thinking, of class, of, you know, elitism. I mean, there, there is. In the yeah, I mean, there is. There is a gentry. 
Right. You know, there is a gentry. I mean, the right. likes of, say, Alexander, ha- well, especially Jefferson and Hamilton. I mean, there's this class of folks. For sure, yes. But it, and it's also the case, and this is the legacy that we have yet to fully, fully deal with. There is that, that slavery, which yes. just burned American history. But even there, Thomas Paine had this sense of optimism that Americans could somehow transform themselves and literally not just abolish slavery, but make themselves into the small d Democrats he envisioned. Yeah. What, did, what, was the, what is the promise of those times? What are, I mean, you know, we, we throw around terms, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, that, that and we throw them around, but I, I think we fail to appreciate just how deeply ingrained they are and what it means to be an American. I mean, so if you take Thomas Paine's Common Sense, you can see in its pages, it's mere 50 pages or 47, depending on the printing, you can see already that these are going to be fundamental ideals that Americans themselves will recognize about themselves and make themselves, uh, proclaim for themselves. Now, the irony, of course, is that it's Thomas Jefferson who does, in fact, write the Declaration. Right. And, he, and he writes words that truly become, and by the way, Throughout the revolution, it's common sense is the fundamental text. Mm. It's later in American history that Americans sort of grab hold of the Declaration and make it the fundamental text, except Uh for one group. There's no doubt, I have no doubt that I could show the links between Paine's ideas and just about every group in America at the time of the revolution. But there's one particular group, especially up in New England, that sees the promise in the Declaration. That's African-Americans. Mm. Because here's this founding text that says, I mean, the, the irony again is it's Jefferson's words. Yep. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those are really powerful. Now, conservatives have made every effort to try to lay claim to that. You know, they talk about, well, look, it's the creator. It's God that grants these rights. It's life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, liberty. That is, you know, don't, don't, don't give me a big government. Don't raise my taxes and all that. But actually, over and over again in American history, progressive movements, whether they were free thinkers or they were abolitionists or they were, you know, they were slaves joining the abolitionist cause or they were women seeking their rights, socialists, you know, I can go all the way through, populists, I can give you a mini lecture on history. Every one of these groups, to assert their right, their claim on the American promise, they go back to the revolution. They reclaim Thomas Paine's, by the way, Paine's work never went out of print in the United States as much as the conservatives tried to keep it from happening. Wow. They go back, they lay claim to Paine's arguments, they lay claim to the declaration, and they give it, if you like, a new projection a new projection. So you get, for example, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and the women at, uh, you mentioned Chautauqua, up in Seneca Falls. Mm -hmm. What do they do? They rewrite the declaration, all men and women, okay? Mm -hmm. By the way, people should read the Declaration of Sentiments. It shows you how far, how how much of a connection there is between the Seneca Falls Convention and the Me Too movement today, whatever, you know, however much they differ, because in the Seneca Falls Declaration, they actually some ways down their list of, of demands, their indictments, are, is this question of harassment, mm. okay, of the bodily mistreatments and so on. Okay, so you had that. Abolitionists grab hold of, of even Frederick Douglass, who began as a, what we call a Garrisonian, who believed, Garrison said, you know, screw the South, 
screw the Constitution. If it means dividing the nation, we should not be involved with the immorality of slavery. Let's break. He was calling almost for a secession of the North. But Douglas, who had been, a, if you like, a, a follower of Garrison, eventually came to see that, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's look at this Constitution. What does it say? It says, all men are created equal, you know, guaranteed, you know, assured by their creator. And he grabs hold of this, and, it, and when he asks the question, what to the slave is the 4th of July, this famous speech he gave in 1852, he ends by saying that he has, still has great hope for America, and he literally grabs hold of the Declaration. Mm. Okay? Similarly, free thinkers, people who are seeking the separation of church and state, over and over again reach back to pain, and they can even go, if you like, to the Declaration, because it actually doesn't just, it doesn't say the creator alone, it says the laws of nature and of nature's God. Ah, it's a reflection of the deism that the founders subscribed to. Yep. Okay. So again, I, I could take you all the way through American history. We'd probably need two or three sessions together, but it's, it, it's so ingrained in our being. And I, I actually do believe that Americans are radicals at heart. However, it doesn't just happen. You know, shit may happen, but, <laughs> but good stuff doesn't just happen. It requires people not unlike Thomas Paine, but in a new way to, rem to remind us, to remind ourselves and to remind us of the promise that is America and, and not to scorn the past. Okay, the exploitation, the oppression, the injustices, let's face up to them. But yeah. let's not forget, we don't have slavery. Women are not bound to their husbands as they were. These things didn't just happen. They happened because we grabbed hold of the promise. We struggled for it. Sometimes we lost but sometimes we won, and we actually got a word that we too often stay away from. We actually got progress. My <laughs> goodness, we got progress. <laughs> you know? I mean, we actually got more freedom, more equality, and more democracy. And I'll just jump ahead. I don't mean to, to, to monopolize the conversation, but I'm going to say one more thing, okay? The one more thing is this. When push comes to, sh comes to shove in American history, the time of the revolution, the Civil War, Depression of the 1930s, the fascist threat of the 1940s, even if you like, the, 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 in the midst of the Cold War, the struggles of the 60s, when push comes to shove, even if we don't get it all done, Americans somehow find it in themselves, okay, to make America radically freer, more equal, and more democratic than it had been before. Yeah. We didn't just create a republic, we created the beginnings of a truly democratic republic, the beginnings. We didn't just beat the South and win the Civil War. We did it by responding to the calls of slaves who were fleeing the South and the demands of abolitionists, and Lincoln signs the Emancipation Proclamation, and 250,000 African Americans serve in the Union Army and help win that war. We, we don't just we don't just give our labors to the New Deal, we give our struggles to the New Deal, and we end up pushing FDR even further than he might have imagined he would go. So we create Social Security, National Labor Relations Act, we literally transform the landscape and the politics of American life and the place of government in our lives. And when fascism threatened as it did, we end up literally reducing inequality in the course of the war. And we go on to create probably the strongest, richest, you know, the pr most prosperous nation on earth. And for all of our faults and failings, from McCarthyism to the continuation of Jim Crow, we continued in various ways to push and to push and to push. And our, not yours, I'm older than you are, but my generation ends up calling to its parents to live up to what they fought for, for four freedoms. 
And that generation is not my generation. Hell, we didn't even vote yet. But that generation was the generation that actually enacted civil rights, voting rights, immigration reform, um, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, environmental protection, consumer product protection, occupational safety and health protection. I mean, it, it was an incredibly progressive generation from 35 to 65. So where does that come from? You know, it doesn't come from feeling guilty. It comes <laughs> from remembering who you are and, and living up to it. Mm. Sorry, Damn inspiring, go. Harvey. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, um, I was, do you know the book, The Fourth Turning? I think I do. I, yeah. Remind me of the, who's the author? It's a how H O W E. He's one of them. He's a sociologist. And, um, I trained in sociology as well. It's maybe why I heard of him, but, um, yeah, he, they also, he and his partner, I can't remember. I'm trying to look on my bookshelf right now. If I can see it. Is this about generations? No, I'm thinking of the wrong yeah, thing. Strauss oh, and Howe, same guys. They wrote okay. generations and then they yeah. wrote a book called the fourth turning. And what they talk about is these, these four turnings in American Anglo-Saxon American history. Uh-huh. And the ones you named, uh, the Revolution, the Civil War, and the Depression slash World War II, were all fourth turnings major. And what it happens is, is all, it, all infrastructure and institutions disintegrate, and then they're rebuilt into something better. Um, the 60s is part of kind of the Great Awakening. It was a big spiritual expansion, mm-hmm. um, and institutions were actually built up. But they really believe that right now we are in the next fourth turning. And, well, it, I, and, I, and just to let you know, I mean, whether I use that particular language or not, I, t- I do tell my students that we that as dark as things may be, given the, the administration and the Congress, the stranglehold by the right Republicans in Congress, that we are at a moment which demands yes. not just hope, but literally a certain set of actions. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and I feel that this Trump era, which has been a, you know, I think not when 9-11 hit America, things really changed in the heart and soul of this country. Something, something broke, something uh-huh. created a lot of terror and fear. You saw people yes. who were pretty yes. moderate move very right because and I think that was really out of fear and terror like oh my god the the kind of emerald city we had created uh is is not uh you know is is people can come here and do to us what we see happens in the rest of the world in Europe and Asia that we're not some you know we're not the most special kid on the block anymore we're like everyone else in that way in in physical you know, threat. Right. And, um, and, the, and the shame of that moment was, I mean, there, I mean, people rallied in various ways, but the yes. shame of that moment was, is that we allowed the fear. Right. To become the order of the day. Yes. Okay. And yes. As I, I was with a, I, I, I've worked, done a lot of work over the past decade or more with a veterans group down in Sarasota, Florida. I'm not a veteran of, a veteran of any war, but I worked, uh, this is a group that named itself Veterans for Common Sense after Thomas Paine, and they reached out to me to work with them. And I was with the president of the group one time on radio, and this was way back, 2005, six. And he said to him, he said on radio, and I heard him say this, said, what have we become? We seem to be fearful. Yeah. Okay, it's like, it, and, and if we don't watch out, that fear is going to be harnessed by, in this country by forces that are going to seek to, to, that are going to seek to subject us 
to a status below that of citizens. So anyhow, that was his concern. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, we went from, you know, I mean, we think of, we think of these great leaders during the fearful times, you know, revolution, civil war, depression, world war two, these great leaders that stood, that stood up and looked towards the promise of America were able to look through an aspirational filter. Right. And instead what we got was a war based on lies and, 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 and a nation that, um, was told to go out and shop. (laughs) I I mean, you know, I know it's fun, I know it's funny to think about it, but think about the difference between think about this. Think about this: a, a nation that was told to just go out to Disneyland and go out to shop, continue to do whatever you're doing. Americans wanted to know what they could do, yes. not simply, not simply. I mean, th- compare that, say, to FDR or Eleanor Roosevelt, who, who, who and Fiorella LaGuardia, who championed the idea of a true civilian defense. Mm. That the best defense is to strengthen Americans in body and spirit. And, you know, that kind of fashion, instead of go out and shop. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, what we, what we want in those moments and need in those moments, as we do in any, I mean, you think about personal crisis in our own lives. When, our, yeah. when, when, when we come to a crossroads in our, our own life, like, you know, maybe someone dies in our life or we, we lose a career or there's a health scare, there's, there's, a, there's a real reckoning inside of ourselves of, okay, Something is falling, something is dying, something, there's a loss here, but where is my, you know, where's my inner compass? Where, where is the thing that's going to make life move, that move me toward more life again? And there's that aspirational thing missing. And, and yeah, we, exactly. We were put into a a bullshit war. We were going to jam democracy down a region's throat that is not, it's not a, a place that is ready for democratic. Rep- yeah, I mean, the, the Soviets learned at great expense that, you know, they, they couldn't impose communism. And, and the fact is there's right. no way you, you could have imposed. You Western can't impose ideolo- ideology on a, on a people whose, whose ideologies are from a whole different sector of thinking. I mean, you know, I mean, and, and, and then we were, you know, we were told to shop. And then technology, the technology came at that time and the internet explosion, which was amazing, yeah. but it didn't, it didn't bring us together. It just turned us into little fractals, our own personal fractals in our yeah. own personal little, right. in yeah. our bubbles. And there's, there's, there was no one who came and, you know, said, you know, this is what we believe in again. And I think that's why the Obama moment, even though, you know, he's, uh, you know, considered more of a mainstream, I guess they call him neoliberal. Yeah. yeah. But this, but his roots of who he is, his oration, his ability to tell a story about America, that's what we were looking well, for. Yeah. I mean, I'll dissent only a little on one thing, okay? Yeah. I mean, one of the things, in fact, I was talking to someone about this, I talk about this all the time, when I was saying talking to someone, I, was, I talk about this all the time. I mean, he had incredible oratorical skills. He has incredible oratorical yes. skills. Everyone remembers his 2004 speech to the Democratic National Convention. And that may well have been the best speech of his life. Yes, and it's what we needed. We were so hungry for something like yeah. that. Well, it, it, and indeed, what it did is it enabled the Democratic Party to, to come together on something. But the problem, the problem with Obama, and I say this as a problem with Obama, but it's also the problem with ourselves, is that 
he never he never really called Americans forth. Yes. He never followed up on yes we can. Yep. I mean, I, I remember in 2000 and uh, what was the first, 2008 during that campaign, my students, without, I mean, these were students I didn't even know in my big intro lecture course. I just happened to ask them, I said, so how many of you, you know, think of yourselves as Republican, how many Democrat? And it was, you know, like one third Republican, third Democrat. But I also remember, I said, well, how many of you are, might, can see yourself voting for, and I named, I think, the one or two key de- Republican candidates at the time. There were like two hands that went up for the Republicans. And then I asked how many could see themselves voting for, and I guess at that point I would have said Edwards or Clinton or Obama. And right. the enthusiasm was tremendous. And among my upper level students, I was astonished at how eager they were to go out and canvas and really get involved. They took to heart, yes, we can. Yep. And then I remembered the utter deflation in the spring semester 2009, before the Tea Party emerges, they're sensible, what do we do now? What, yep. what, what, you know, it wasn't like they were looking for the guy on the white, you know, the white guy on the white horse with the white hat, the, you know, that kind of figure. What they were looking for was empowerment. Give us a means by which we can change the nation in a progressive way. Mm. And I remember saying to, to my, I actually I wrote about this as well. I mean, I, I wrote about the fact that he, he could have perhaps done the kinds of things FDR did. Give Americans its own new rendition of a CCC, Civilian Conservation Corps. Yes. Promise something like, you know, what Bernie and others now call for, this free tuition in public higher education, not by just giving it to them, by, by saying, we're going to institute national service. Yeah, we're going to work together towards... Right. Well, you know, for every year of national service, you get a free year of, of higher education. Not for the sake only of doing good, not only for the sake of paying, you know, avoiding these incredible fucking debts that students have, but actually, so American young people would get to discover each other mm. and realize that they had it in their power. I'm using Thomas Paine's words. He would have said to make the world over again, mm. but in the, at least that they had it in their power to make things happen. Mm. It was a, a, a moment that was lost. And in, and in the end, and he could have called out labor in support of what he did, and he didn't. In the end, the public square was occupied by the right, the Tea Party, and not by liberals and the left. And, and what really made it ironic, if you can remember, there were those, when they had the town halls on, on, Medica- on Obamacare, people turned out, these upper middle class white folks turned out and held up signs and said, don't touch my Medicare. Yep. <laughs> They're defending their socialism, right? Yes. <laughs> They're defending their socialism. Yeah. And, which is to show you that they could have been addressed and engaged in their own way Perhaps not by radicals and socialists, you know, because that would have been asking too much maybe at the moment. But, yeah. they, but Obama could have engaged them. Other Democrats could have engaged them. That, to me, is the tragedy of the Democratic Party. That they have, for ever since the 70s, they've allowed conservatives to define America, and they have failed to define America. Well, I think, I think that is so true. And that line you said about Thomas Paine, about uh, finding a way to make the world over again. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think about the, the frustration that feeds everybody in this country, whether, you know, any kind of level of, of, you know, class, working class, whatever it is, any kind of color, gender, political leaning, 
is that we all feel like there are forces that are so big now that we don't get to make the world over again. And that, and that this, you know, I, I get the, um, the thing that Trump ignited and Steve Bannon ignites and that, that, that air, those people ignite, which is populism of the right. Let's burn it all down. Fuck it. We need to start over. And it's like, yes. And (laughs) I get that. You know, it's interesting. If I I can give you another kind of historical. Yeah, please. So I've been teaching for 40 years now. I did my PhD. I did my, I was in college in the late sixties. I did graduate school in the early seventies. Um, I traveled. I, I did my graduate work in London in the London School of Economics. I came back to the United States. I, I don't put this on my resume, but I worked on Wall Street for almost a year as an international lending officer for a big bank. I hated it, but it, I learned a lot. And I went down to Louisiana State University. I got a PhD. I came out. And as I entered higher education with this sort of determination to help Americans remember who they are, thus begins what I, can, I have to call the class war from above. The determination on the part of the corporate powers that be and their conservative and eventually neoliberal allies truly to to demolish our solidarities. Yes. That was what was happening. And, and, And I say solidarities, and I mean it in two ways. The solidarities that had been emerging, they were afraid in the 70s, those powers that be, that we were going to create some broad progressive coalition. And we were going to do the thing that had begun in the, in the 30s, advanced during the war effort, and, be, and was taken even further in the 1960s. That is, whether we were going to make America all the more liberal and all the more social democratic. And they declared war. They declared war openly. I mean, I, if anyone wants to read my books, they'll see exactly where they did it and how they did it. And whatever was the left which, by the way, you know, sort of splintered in a, what often is called identity politics. Yep. They, it, it fractured and fragmented. And thus this, I don't know what the opposite of solidarity is, this division and disunity emerges, and we failed that moment. We failed ourselves, and we failed what eventually would become our children and grandchildren because that was a moment where we should have learned from our parents and grandparents. We should have learned from those who created the nation and those who won the civil war, that that's the moment that if you're going to defend what you've got, the only way to defend it is to make America all the freer, all the more equal and all the more democratic. So what we've had is 40 years of demolishing our solidarities. And by the way, I meant to say, didn't just set out to demolish the solidarities of labor and, and, and other movements. It set out to demolish the, the, the solidarity between us and earlier generations, because they really wanted us to forget. Mm. When they, and, and there was a, you know, as soon as I mentioned this, anyone listening would say, oh, this is a conspiracy theory. No conspiracy. There was truly a trilateral commission organized by David Rockefeller and, and Zbigniew Brzezinski, okay, which included everyone from George Bush all the way over to Jimmy Carter and everyone in between. And they issued a report published by NYU Press. No little press and, you know, no secret memorandum, the the Powell memorandum. It was open and public. And it laid out those who were threatening capitalism. They called it an excess of democracy, a crisis of democracy that needed to be dampened, essentially suppressed. They mentioned public employees. They mentioned women. 
They mentioned poor people. They mentioned students. I mean, I'll just name them all. Yeah. And they added to the list their enemies of the people, their enemies of the world list, you might say, the media, and you got to love it, value-oriented intellectuals. And what they meant by that was people in the humanities and social sciences, which, by the way, probably gave us more credit than we were due. But they set out literally to control the teaching of history, to dictate curriculum. They really wanted to sever the solidarity of one generation and their forebears. They wanted us to forget. They wanted us to become amnesiacs about how the achievements, the legacy of generations was accomplished. And we've now rejected those, that narrative that they offered in place, you know, capitalism, individualism, we're rejecting it, I think. But we're not, but what, all we've got so far is a resistance. And now yeah. is the time to do what they were afraid of in the 70s, recreate the solidarities. So can you help me, Harvey, figure out where, so it's, it's so interesting because uh, I remember that term, the Trilateral Commission. I remember that. I remember my dad. My colleague and I even joke with each other. Oh, yeah, Trilateral Commission. You're going to go conspiracy theory. Yeah, I'm, it does. No conspiracy is wide open. It's like the Bohemian Grove. It actually happened. Those people did that. that stuff. They hung out together. They all hung out together, people. Yeah. And exactly. My dad used to say, there's no need for a conspiracy. These people all go to school together, and they all know the same people. They've all, they're all invested in the same companies, you know. Um, so explain to me then this position, this anti-globalist, anti-Clinton, um, this Fox News perspective. Like, where do they fit into this? Because this Tea Party, like, it feels like the populism on the right is okay, well, okay, well, this comes back to the question of, remember, you, you were, uh, this, this links together your question and the observation, well, let's put it this way. I live in Wisconsin, and I've lived here now for, geez, almost, four, I guess, 41 years, okay? And I came to a state that historically was known as the progressive state. Yep. Which originally meant capital P progressive, Robert La Follette, okay? And La Follette of, of the 30s, the La Follette Jr. This was the place that gave birth to public employee unionism. This was the first state that, that licensed public employee unionism in 1959. By the way, it was also the first state to rescind public employee un unionism under Scott Walker. Yes, lovely. Okay. But, but that's part of the story. So here's this progressive state which, by the way, in 19, 19, listen to me, in 2016 was taken for granted by the Clinton Democrats. 100%. Okay, and I, I won't go into the full story here because I don't want it, it, it gives away too much. But, but absolutely. I, but I can I, tell you that Hillary Clinton was so confident she was going to win this state and probably Michigan and Pennsylvania, all these states. She didn't even come back to talk to us. I mean, she didn't come back to talk to us. So, so... You know, so she won the popular vote nationally, but she lost Wisconsin. Key, right. Key districts that add up to the Electoral right. College. So yeah. I at least can speak from experience. So let me tell you a little story that really shook me up. So I had heard that she wasn't coming back through friends of mine who were in the campaign. And I thought, uh-oh, that's the begin with. But I thought, well, they know better than I do. They're doing the polls. They know if they should be confident or not. What do I know, right? I'm a professor. I deal with the past. I'm underestimating my knowledge, but that's yeah, truly. <laughs> so, so one night, I'm 
I, I had to drive over to, I'm on the east side of Green Bay. We're divided by a river. And I was driving over to the west side, took me through downtown. And I was running into traffic. And Green Bay is a, a city of only about 100,000 people. So running into traffic, you wonder if the, the bridge was up over the river, if a railway was in place. And then I, all of a sudden I see large crowds of people crossing the street. And I had forgotten that Donald Trump was coming back to Green Bay to campaign. Mm. All well and good for the Trumpsters, right? But when I saw, the crowd wasn't the question. It was who constituted the crowd. Yeah. And I ask my students sometimes to guess who constituted the crowd, and they never get it. Oh, well, once in a while, the one young woman will get it. It was all women. Wow. And, I, and as they, I walked, I said, this, uh-oh. I knew we were in real trouble if the people turning out see Donald Trump. And by the way, was When there's like, a woman running for president... <laughs> I think it's 53% of white women at least voted for Donald Trump. Yep. And, and Wisconsin has got far more white women than, than women of color. So I knew we were in trouble. Now, here's the thing. So why would Wisconsin, this blue state, presidentially speaking, historically Republican, undeniably after the Civil War, but for years now, a state the Democrats could depend on, what would have happened? Well, what would have happened is the same thing that gave Scott Walker the, the governorship in, in 2010. The same thing that gave the legislature control over our lives and took away and led them to take away our collective bargaining rights, to slash university budgets, to try to invade the bodies of women, to try to suppress the vote. I mean, you name it, we were like the testing ground for the Koch brothers' wet dream. Yep. Sorry. Yep. Okay. <laughs> fine with this audience. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I hear your father somewhere out there. <laughs> <laughs> so so what, what, what happened was that basically 40 years of class war, mm. 40 years of Republican initiatives, 40 years of Democrats turning their backs on working people, 40 years of Democrats turning their backs on the tradition of FDR, liberalism, social democracy, on turning their backs on the struggles of the 60s, civil rights. Um, what, the rights of women. I mean, we can just go on and on and on. It catches up. Yep. Okay. And if people do not, was it Harry Truman or somebody said, um, if, if, wait, wait, if Democrats don't act like Democrats, wait, no, 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 no. It had to do with the idea. You might as well vote. You might as well vote for the phony ones or, you know, you know, this quote has to do with Republicans. Oh, it's a great one. It's like, Okay, you know you don't want a Republic, uh, Republicans, but sure as hell you don't want to vote for the ones who act like Republicans. And I'm completely blowing the quote. Right, right. So what happened was they were angry. I mean, you could imagine, and I, I, I said this before any of these talking heads on TV did, did, and they don't talk about it much. I think the average Wisconsinite, and by the way, this might include people of color, just wanted to punch in the nose the establishment Democrats. Yeah. They didn't like, and by the way, and, they, and by voting for Trump, it's like, like they were voting for the establishment Republicans either. Right. They were voting for this guy who, who literally like, you know, wanted to tear things down and, you know, sort of start a lot. He didn't, he had no plans. No plans. No ideas. He just said, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. Right. And, and basically they said, geez, I can say fuck you too. Mm-hmm. And I know it sounds crude and I know it sounds too simplistic, and, but I honestly can tell you, and I know, by the way, this is not a campaign ad for Bernie. I'm, I know Bernie won the Democratic primary in this state, and I know that he probably would have won the election and beaten Trump because the students of mine, my 18-year-old, the brand new students who, who confessed, you might say, in class that they had voted for Trump, added 
Well, that's what their parents had done. They had grown up that way. But they would add, and I was amazed how many said this, but my parents would have voted for Bernie if he was the Democratic candidate. Yeah. This, and I know it's anecdotal, right. but I can tell you that people in Wisconsin were just utterly fed up. Yeah. So that's where it comes from. It comes from 40 years, not of just Republicans doing what they did, because hell, they could never have accomplished what they accomplished if the Democrats, starting with Jimmy Carter, Carter I, paved the way for Ronald Reagan. Right. Okay. I mean, I know everybody loves Jimmy Carter, for, you know, but I mean, they love him probably because he's not president anymore. Yeah. Well, okay. yeah. And he actually is like a good, he actually is a good Christian. Like, yeah, he, I, I, well, which doesn't necessarily, sorry, I won't be nasty, but it doesn't always impress me, that kind of stuff. But I can tell, <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, I want, I want action and I want yeah. Demo, small D democratic action. And yeah. he, the guy, by the way, you know, this term austerity that neoliberals like to use. Mm-hmm. And he's the one who started using it in speeches in the late 80s. I mean, I, that's the problem with reading these things. You see that the, the, the degree to which the Republicans did what Republicans might well want to do. By the way, it wasn't even the traditional Republicans of the Eisenhower sort. It was, the, it was this new Republican, this new right. But they, the whole way was paved. He deregulated transportation. He deregulated finance. Mm. He refused to push for labor law reform to empower workers. He didn't back uh, Ralph Nader's consumer products effort. I mean, it was over and over again. And, he, and so Mondale, who was better than Carter, still didn't necessarily come back to the FDR tradition. Dukakis, <laughs> that was like hilarious, right. tragic comic, right? And then let's go to G- Bill Clinton, right? I mean, Bill Clinton, in the course of his presidency of eight years, this is part of the story I was telling, in the course of eight years, did everything that, that even Eisenhower wouldn't have done, okay? And Eisenhower said, you know, you don't mess with labor law. You don't do this. You don't do that. What did, what did Clinton do? He mass incarceration. He deregulated the banks. I mean, over and over again, he lived up to Republicans' dreams. He, he deregulated. And by the way, the leading voice for the Clinton administration was Hillary. Yeah, and, and, in, the, was, and in the Communications Act, he, yeah, completely, that was it. Yes. he completely undermined the fourth right. estate. That's and right. We have Absolutely. what we have today in media Absolutely. because of the Clintons. Absolutely. So in every single area of life, okay, and he signed that so-called Welfare Reform Act. I mean, right. think about it. I mean, Ronald Reagan fantasized doing all of that. Right. Clinton did it. And so when Wisconsinites think about, well, are they going to vote for Hillary Clinton or are they going to vote? For, now, I voted for Hillary Clinton. Okay? I did too. I, okay. I, I did. Swear I would never, ever vote for a Clinton again. I never wanted to vote for a bill to begin with. But I did it because I had no intention of giving the Supreme Court over to these guys. Okay. So what do we get? Other people didn't feel the way I did. They said, I'm going to punch him in the nose. Yeah. See, that's what gets me frustrated about American voting, you know, motivation is that, you know, in the end, I get it. Like, I, I get that Hillary is not our choice. I get that, you know, you know, it's, it's neoliberal and all of that. But there is a huge difference between a Democratic president and a Republican president when it comes to things like the Supreme Court, <laughs> right. things that are long-term and women's abortion rights and environmental stuff. And no, it's not going to be the, the, the social Democrat or the, you know, the way, the way, the ultimate way we want it. 
but there is a difference between these candidates. And I get very frustrated with people who get pouty and cross their arms and sit in the corner and say, I'm not going to participate now because my person's not in it. And it doesn't look exactly how I want it. And it's like, you know what? Put your goddamn fucking big girl pants on and do the right thing. Um, because now, you know, with fucking Mitch McConnell, I mean, it's like, we're so- okay, can I just tell you, I, this is, I tell, you know, people say, what am I going to do? I say, okay, here's what you do. You got to vote. Yes. So in the primary, you vote for who you like. Yes. And in the regular election, you vote against who you don't like. Right. Or you vote for the person you, you hate the least. <laughs> right, but I can never imagine myself voting Republican. So I just know that, I'm, I know that it's a matter of what. Right. You know, you know, and it's also, I also want to say that I'm, in 1980, when it was Jimmy Carter versus Ronald Reagan, uh, there was no way I could vote. I mean, Reagan, I, the thought, I can't even imagine but I absolutely could not vote for Carter. Mm. He was a disaster and a dangerous disaster, by the way. Mm. So I voted for Barry Commoner on the Citizens Party, which was a one-shot, a one-hit wonder. I voted for Nader instead of Gore, you know, but I lived in California. Shame on you. I lived in California. My oh, yeah, you can get it. It's like, my, it's like young people I know who can vote for the, fa- work, the Working Families Party in New York. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I can, I can get I, away I with it. I envy that privilege. Right, I do. I have a privilege in California, absolutely. But you know what? Nader, Nader helped cost Florida in that year. Oh, I know. And Jill Stein helped cost Wisconsin. I know, later. I know. I mean, people have to learn how to vote, maybe. I, and maybe we need to teach them that. So, Harvey, will you, we're, we're going to end here today, but I would love for you to come on in a couple of months and let's, um, let's talk about the 2020 election in a oh, few Oh, I'd love to. Absolutely. I'd love to. And unpack it all and talk about this stuff and yeah. see who's starting to be sure. on a front runner out of the 25 candidates. <laughs> That's what he is. The number 25 is exactly the number I tell my students. I say, yeah. I can't keep count. Let's assume they are 25. I can't. And I think, but I think it's, I think it's fascinating that there seems to be some sort of uh, loosening of the hold of this neoliberal Thing going on in the Democratic Party because so many voices are feeling the urge to step forward. I don't know how it's going to shake out in the end, yeah, right. but I think it's fascinating and I think it's also part of the Trump era that it's just like people are inspired to run now and are like, fuck it, we need to do something today. I'd be more than happy if Beto wants to run for Senate. Yes! Just fucking stay out of the presidential race. It's, By the way, it's, the last time somebody lost, let me remind everyone, there's a, there's a, note, a note to close on. Abraham Lincoln ran for the U.S. Senate in Illinois against Stephen Douglas in, in 1858. Did a cr- tremendous job and became a national figure so that the Republicans in New York even invited him to come and give a speech that would el- help elevate him to the Republican nomination for president. And Lincoln did, and he wins the nomination, and given the circumstances of the time, he wins the presidency, and we end up in a civil war. I see that should be the warning to Beto O'Rourke. Don't run for president. Don't tempt fate. Now, because he ain't Abraham Lincoln. Right. Okay? And as a consequence, do, do us a favor, okay? Yeah. I mean, that's a silly note, but a note that I can close on, I guess. No, it's, it's good. It's good. And, uh, 
Yeah, it's interesting times. <laughs> That's a Chinese curse, isn't it? It That's is. What I heard, right? And we're living in it. <laughs> yeah, definitely are. And this was fun. I definitely already look forward to, to talking to you again. Good. Yeah, no, that would be great. We'll check in in a couple of months and we'll okay. maybe we'll do this as a regular thing every few months as we go get closer and closer. <laughs> and let's see if we can keep laughing as we get closer. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Oh, exactly. Well, thank you, Harvey. And everybody, if you want to find Harvey, uh, you can find him on Twitter at Harvey J-K, K-A-Y-E. So it's right. H-A-R-V-E-Y, letter J, K-A-Y-E. And follow Harvey there. He'll be uh, tweeting all sorts of important things yeah, and, and teaching right. history and keeping us aware of the aspirational aspects of um, – you know, I'm a person on the left who's very, very proud to be an American. I am inspired by American ideals. It's why I wanted to have this podcast. It's why I called it Waking from the American Dream, because there's ways in which we are put to sleep by the American Dream, but there are also ways in which the ideals of this country are important ones. They are essential humanity ideals, and this grand experiment may look like it's circling the drain, but damn it, I'm fighting for it still. Right. Excellent. I like that. Yeah. We're in the same club. Yeah. Thank you, Harvey, for your wisdom and your knowledge and your perspective. And we'll right. talk soon. Thank you so much. Order, order, order everyone Finish up your donuts, set your PDAs to stun We've got so little time and we've got so much to do And there's this tasty opportunity I gotta share with you That times are kinda trying in the corporate world today With the stinky liberal hippie dippers standing in our way They whine about the worker, chain their children to a tree and they're using all these dirty words like transparency. Transparency. Ooh, scary. Now they're setting up the barricades and fouling up the street with the odor of patchouli and their stinky hippie feet. Now they're stirring up the masses and they think they're really clever. But we have got a secret weapon. Meet Senator Whoever. The latest in technology, a bona fide advance, a walking opportunity, a work around in pants. Note the flag in his left hand, waving high for all to see. And his right hand said to shake whichever hand that pays the fee. That, my little piggies, is just where we come in. Our currency is currency, our objective is to win. We'll buy him suits and wingtips of impeccable design. Then give him golden fountain pens and tell him where to sign. You know where he sang. And when they've got him used to all the goodies we provide, and we swear that we'll stand by him long as he stays on our side, we'll make it clear that if he crosses us, his credit we will sever. And mission accomplished. He's our senator, whoever. But there's more to this
After Citizens United, <laughs> gentlemen, we've won. There is no max for super PACs. You cannot overreach. The Supreme Court finally figured out that bribery is speech. Now with money buying lobbyists and lobbyists by laws. Well, someone's got to sign them, so let's get behind the cause. And keep your eyes upon the prize, the ultimate endeavor. The purchase of the 